Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into Clojure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about Clojure with Zach Tellman, the creator of Aleph, Manifold, and Elements of Clojure, a recent book about Clojure. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So I think that uh, in preparation for this interview, I was thinking a little bit about sort of people in the Clojure community and sort of your, your impact on Clojure. And I would say that probably be the top 10 at least, if not top five sort of people who've had impact on Clojure programmers. And that's, I guess, most Clojure programs running today would have some of your code somewhere in it. Do you think that would be a fair assessment? I think so. I mean, I've never been sure if people use my libraries because they're the right libraries to use or because, you know, they think they're kind of neat or because uh, the name is just more memorable than the other library. But uh, yeah, I think that it's, it's, they've propagated pretty far into the community at this point. Yeah. And so you've been working with Clojure for 10 years, maybe more by now? Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I started in, yeah, uh, it would have been late 2008, uh, early 2009, I think. Right. Cool. And so I guess you've, you've kind of covered off your intro to Clojure pretty well in talks and other, other interviews. So I don't want to kind of rehash your whole closure origin story but i guess maybe would you be able to just sort of give us a brief overview of why closure how you got here and then sort of maybe start with sort of some of the original libraries that you worked on i started using closure during my first job where i was working with uh, c sharp to write desktop software for windows i realized a few years in that this is not something i wanted to be doing for the rest of my career and so i started looking at alternative languages. I uh, was looking at Ruby because I was in like Soma in San Francisco. GitHub had just been founded like down the street. It was, you know, very much in the air. I looked at OCaml. I looked at Erlang. I looked at uh, Clojure. And Clojure was because I was working at the time with Tom Fallhaber, who wrote uh, Clojure.pprint, among other things. And he was a fan of Lisp from back in the day with uh, Common Lisp. And he really thought that, you know, closure was something worth looking at. And the absolutely absurd sort of test I did for each of these languages was I tried to write something with OpenGL because in school I had focused on graphics and computational geometry and I felt like I kind of missed that and want to get back into that. And so I played around with Ruby. I played around with OCaml. Both of those bindings weren't very good. Erlang didn't even have them. So that kind of was a non-starter. But Clojure, when I started playing around with it, you know, I was able to just take uh, LWJGL, which is the lightweight Java gaming library, <laughs> which provides extremely literal bindings over the OpenGL spec. Like literally, it just has a bunch of static classes which correspond to the different OpenGL versions. So there's GL10, GL11, GL12, <laughs> and you have to import the static methods from the correct one. It's actually really tedious. But as I was kind of learning Clojure and trying to go and like learn how this library worked at the same time, I found that there was this really interesting kind of semantic compression I was getting, right? Like I could go and I could say, actually, I don't care what class this is in. I'll just use like macro time reflection to figure out which of the classes it should be, because I know there's something named this somewhere. So just find it. And also OpenGL has a lot of scoped operators where you have to explicitly like enter and exit some sort of scope. And of course, you know, with macros, it's very easy to go and just say, you know, enter this at the top, exit at the bottom within some sort of like try finally. 
And so it was actually, weirdly, a very good way to get familiar with the benefits of using Clojure, at least as a way of kind of interfacing with the Java library ecosystem. And so based on that, I created my very first open source library in any language, which was called Penumbra, which was a wrapper for OpenGL. And it was actually a wrapper for a older version of OpenGL, what's called immediate mode, where you go and you kind of, for each frame, you make a call for each vertex that you want to draw. And this is very inefficient and not used by any serious game engine anywhere. Uh, but it is a very sort of easy, fun way to go and sort of experiment with it. And, you know, that's what I did. I just kind of played around with it and came up with little graphical demos and figured out how that should sort of work with Clojure. And towards the end of it, I was actually trying to create something that transpiled Clojure into uh, GLSL, the GL shading language, which is the code that executes on the GPU. And to do this, you had to do like type inference and stuff because GLSL is effectively like C99 with like, you know, a few extra operators. And it worked-ish, but basically I was the only one who understood <laughs> what sorts of programs would properly transpile and which ones wouldn't. And so uh, that also became my first introduction to the fact that if you write enough closure and you build enough macros and enough kind of uh, compile time logic, uh, it becomes an opaque sort of tool for anyone but yourself. So that was a that was a fairly uh, fully featured introduction to the good and bad parts of Lisps and uh, Clojure more specifically. Nice. And I think probably a feature of your work would be your macros. You know, you've written a lot of macros. Your code is, you know, macro heavy sounds like it's a, a negative thing, which I'm not saying it is, but I, I, think I mean, it, it might be. Let's, I, I'm, I'm willing to accept that if, if that's how you're, <laughs> you're going to uh, put it. So No, I, I just think, yeah, it's, it's definitely a feature of your work and you've probably written a lot more open source macros than many people have, I would guess, and probably have quite a mature take on macros by now, I would imagine. I don't know. I think that the way that I try to approach things or the way I try, the way I try to approach learning things uh, specifically is to try to figure out where things break down. Like what's the boundary of this thing? Like where does it become this kind of absurd thing as opposed to a useful application of some concept? And a lot of my open source libraries, like ones that I've actually released and ones that just never really quite made it off the ground, were me trying to understand like where is this sensible and where is this just me kind of doing this for the sake of doing it? And, you know, a great example of that is uh, my sort of catch-all utility library called Potemkin, which is actually, I think, the second library I built, or rather released, because I had this idea for how namespaces should work in Clojure. Because, you know, again, OpenGL is this huge surface area to cover. And so I wanted to be able to have a lot of these operators sort of exposed in some places for sort of my own use. And then I want to take a subset of those and lift them up into a different namespace for public consumption. And so I created this macro called import vars, which I thought at the time was just insanely clever idea. I was very proud of it. <laughs> but I think that it also spoke to like a problem that I was seeing, which was that, you know, Clojure doesn't really have a out of the box opinion as to how you should structure your namespaces. Like the only limitation on what goes in a namespace is you can't have two vars that have the same name. And if you take that to its logical conclusion, you basically get closure core, which is thousands of vars, none of which collide with each other. But there's no relationship between them other than the fact that they are just like built-ins to the language. 
And if it were something that were being actively developed, I would think that most developers, maybe not rich, but you know, most developers would find that very ungainly and very hard to navigate. And they might want to go and put like seek related, you know, functions in its own namespace and, you know, uh, special form related stuff into their own namespace and everything. And then just be able to say, actually, all of these should get imported and surfaced into this closure core thing. And so sort of decoupling how your code is organized for your purposes and how your code is exposed to the consumers of your code, like having those be separate seemed good to me at the moment. And I still think it actually seems pretty valid as I explain it right now, but the rest of the community did not agree. In fact, I think that this was like the first time that someone was just like kind of expressed a general ew, sort of like that's that's a gross thing that you just made there sort of reaction, which is not the last time that that's happened, certainly, but like was the first time that someone just had a very strong negative aesthetic reaction to this idea that I had. And in honesty, like that actually was really interesting to me and sort of, I think, motivated me to do this further because I had this question in my head of like, what is good design, right? Uh, software design has always been something that has really interested me because it seems like there is this difference between something that is good and something that is bad. And certainly in like day-to-day conversation, when we're collaborating on code, people have these aesthetic reactions, but like to really understand, to predict how people will respond to this thing is hard. And so being able to have this sort of test bed, right, which was the closure community and be able to put something out there and say like, you know, what do you think? Do you hate it? Do you love it? And just kind of see how people respond to it, what parts like people sort of take and run with, what parts they're just confused by was actually genuinely exciting to me. Like I felt like this was a way to answer these questions much more directly than like just writing some code at work. And so that was really what drove me to go and build more open source libraries was the fact that I could get feedback, sometimes explicit and sometimes, you know, implicit through just people choosing to use or not use the thing that I built. And of course, it's not objective because, you know, once you become established in the community, people use it not because they've carefully considered all the alternatives or something like that. They use it because there's like a brand associated with that or whatever. So it's, you know, more complex than I think I'm making it out to be. But but still, I think that it was an opportunity for me to learn about software design much more quickly than I would just if I were, you know, heads down coding through the workday and sort of letting it go at the end of the day. Nice. I know I've heard lots of people talk about why they contribute to open source and why they create open source libraries, but I've never heard anyone talk about that aspect of understanding good design, at least not as clearly as you have. Well, I think that people are motivated to do open source for a wide variety of reasons. And I mean, this will, I assume, come up later in the uh, the conversation, but like, you know, this is something that I've, I've, I don't think that if you had asked me when I started doing this, like, why are you doing this? I would have had as articulate an answer to that question. I think that at the time it was just weirdly compelling for reasons I couldn't quite say in the same way that closure as a language was weirdly compelling to me for reasons I couldn't quite say. Like the answer I would give when I was just starting out and I was telling people about this, you know, cool new language that I was using, they would say, well, cool, pitch me on it. And the best I could come up with was, you know, it just, it fits my brain. Like it fits the way that I think. And maybe it'll fit yours too, if you check it out. And, you know, it's, it's far from the most winning elevator pitch, I think, but it's hard. It's hard to, I think, be really clear about, you know, why am I having an aesthetic reaction to this thing? You know, it's undeniable that I was and that other people have had this reaction to closure, but to really break it down, I think is a, is a much more complex sort of process. And I'm, I'm not even quite sure that I've fully done it at this point. 
Yeah, maybe sort of diving back into your timeline there, that after Potemkin, the other sort of long-running closure library that I think many people will be familiar with is Aleph, which is a, would you still call it a, a netty wrapper? Wrapper sounds quite diminutive. It's interesting, right? So to kind of start from the beginning, Aleph started in, I want to say 2010, Yeah, I believe, around July. I remember because I wrote it over a long like Fourth of July weekend, um, that was that was when that sort of happened, and the the impetus for that was that I'd gone to a closure meetup, and people were sort of talking idly about you know what would an async ring look like, and it's important to remember that in 2010 the new hotness was Node.js, right? This had just come out, you know, I think less than a year prior. It was taking the world by storm. Everyone was you know really excited to async all the things and. I think that there was a sense that, you know, Clojure as another sort of newcomer on the stage needed to have an answer to Node.js. Like what was our community's kind of thing that was going to be able to sort of tap into the same excitement and be able to sort of use it to grow our community as well. And I didn't have a very good answer to it. And, you know, it's worth sort of remembering at this point, I was doing front end or really, I guess, sort of desktop development, right? And my background was in graphics. I hadn't done systems development of any real sort before, but it seemed like an interesting problem. And uh, other people that I, I was talking to there who were more experienced with this problem than I was felt it was like difficult and hard to navigate. And so I thought I'd just kind of play around with it a little bit. And so I found Netty, which was like the Java async option. And I wrote just enough code in Clojure to expose enough Netty that you could stand up an HTTP server. You know, that was over the course of a couple of days and I like tested, I curled it once to make sure that like it would return hello world. <laughs> that was, that was the extent of my testing. And then I just was like, Hey, here's the thing. I think I like posted it on the closure mailing list. I haven't looked at this announcement for a while, but I think I was pretty clear. I was like, this is just like me kind of playing around with like, what does async closure look like? And someone posted on Hacker News and then David Nolan ran a benchmark, which I had not bothered to do up until that point and said, it's faster than Node.js, which is a total <laughs> not apples to oranges comparison for tons of reasons. For instance, Node.js is single threaded and he was on like an eight core machine or something like that. And so like it was it was an absurd comparison, but uh, both the announcement and the benchmark made it to the top of Hacker News for, you know, a day. And I had my little, you know, moment in the sun and it was kind of absurd on some level because like literally I had just written like a hello world demo of like how one could like, you know, interact with Netty in Clojure. But what that did prove to me is that there was a, an interest in that sort of space and, you know, a much more avid interest than there was in sort of like OpenGL, which is where I'd been putting all of my sort of time and effort up until that point. And so I thought, well, if people like this and people are interested in this, maybe I ought to sort of think about this some more. And so I started to tinker with it and think about like, okay, you know, what are the right ways it deals with asynchrony and other sorts of things like that? And at some point, all of those questions, which were largely orthogonal to Netty specifically, got pulled out into a library called Lamina, which was dealing with kind of data flow streams. It wasn't a queuing library because none of the things there had back pressure or like any of the things you kind of assume that a queuing library ought to have. 
it kind of left that as a like at your end you should be paying attention to when things come out the other end and like you know if, if there's too much then you know stop sending stuff in and you know that just was kind of reflective of again my lack of experience there like these are not things that i i realized were important to have on the basis of that on the basis of me just really brazenly trying to solve problems i had no business or experience trying to solve people gave me a lot of attention and I got a job offer out of that to go work on closure full time. And so, you know, that was very beneficial to me. And I think that like also that is very reflective of how I've treated a lot of open source libraries, which is a chance for me to go and learn about something I didn't know very much about before with the idea that if I'm doing it in public, it's going to be extremely embarrassing if I get it wrong. So I better not get it wrong. So I better like think about it pretty hard and, you know, put the time in to make sure that it's not at least embarrassingly wrong, which again, sometimes it is, but you know, that's a lot of the motivation for me is that like, I feel like I, I learn better in public, I guess, or learn more quickly at least. And you're working in public, but also I guess, what are your thoughts? How do you feel about working with other people? Uh, not just showing your work, but also contributing with others or having others contribute. I mean, I've done a little bit of it, but I have to confess that like a lot of what I've worked on, you know, I mean, certainly Aleph by now is uh, a a collaborative project. I, at this point, I'm getting a lot of contribution from uh, Alexei Kachayev, and he is at this point basically maintainer and all but name of that library. And I, I've been talking to him a little bit about whether or not he would like to make that a little bit more formal. For some of the other ones uh, that I've worked on, I think that I mean, occasionally someone will just kind of come in with a PR where it's clear that they just must have spent days digging into the innards of something and come up with the exact like two line change that needs to go and fix their problem. And I'm always incredibly surprised and impressed when somebody does that. But whether it's just kind of like the code seems a little bit weirder than people are used to, or they just like they don't feel like, you know, they're up to the challenge of understanding it, or I, I don't know what, like I have not successfully created many projects that people are comfortable going and contributing to. I think that Aleph is the one that is the exception to that role, basically. Right. I guess uh, maybe following on from Aleph and Lamina, another sort of asynchronous streaming library would be Manifold, which sort of looks like sort of the some of the things you learned from Lamina. Yeah, basically, it was a, a chance to sort of do a clean sweep. So like the exact sort of order of operations here is I wrote Lamina. Lamina was a kitchen sink for all the ideas I had about asynchronous everything. Had a ton of macros, had a ton of really complex kind of stuff in there. And then Core Async came out. And Core Async was a different overall approach. But like the thing that it really had over Lamina is that it was incredibly simple which is not to say that the implementation was simple, but the API that it had come up with was very direct. It had a handful of operators you had to learn. Um, it had a couple of very big caveats in terms of like the way it did code rewriting in terms of like not being able to enter into functions inside of a, you know, Go routine, which I, I think is still the case. But, you know, other than that, I think it just was a smaller conceptual surface area for someone to have to learn. And, I was impressed by that. And I, I certainly wasn't upset that like someone had not like taken Lamina and just being like, this is clearly the way to go because it's just, <laughs> it's a ridiculously, you know, big sprawling mess. But I had sort of concerns when I looked at it that they were thinking like, oh, well, this is just how Clojure is going to do asynchronous stuff from now on, because it had a very tight coupling between the way that it dealt with 
like an event that hadn't occurred yet or data that we haven't received over a channel yet and the execution model, like when does the code that consumes those things run, right? Notably, it had a fixed size thread pool that all that stuff had to run on. And that seemed like a reasonable decision that you could make if you were writing an application, but I think a very limiting choice to make if you're writing a library, because a library doesn't go and get to dictate like what the execution model of the code that is consuming that library ought to run on. I think that that's not the, the right sort of separation of concerns there. And, you know, beyond that, I think that, you know, CoreySync is an entirely separate way of thinking about lazy or eventual consumption of data, which doesn't play nicely necessarily with, for instance, like lazy seeks or with Java queues or with like a bunch of other sorts of things that are all sort of playing in the same space, all are mutually incompatible with each other. And so my thought was like, let's go and take the intersection at the, you know, center of this Venn diagram of all these things and be something that can go and bridge the gaps between all of them, can convey data between them, and also provides something that is a reasonable, unopinionated set of abstractions that you could use in a library because it's very easy to go and turn that from the manifold representation. And a manifold is just a thing that goes is like sits between a bunch of pipes or conduits or something like this and, and connects them to each other is just sort of the neutral party there, right? It's it's Switzerland and the asynchronous sort of territories. And that was the motivating factor. I mean, it was also just that I felt like Lamina was something where I'd made so many mistakes that I kind of needed to go and just start over. But that was sort of the idea. And so I wrote that and then I rewrote Aleph on top of that. I think that CoreySync still is a much more widely used library in terms of like the Clojure ecosystem. But Manifold, I think, has a, you know, smaller group of, you know, fairly avid fans. And I think that people, you know, will occasionally reach out to let me know that they've used it in one way or another, often on like a fairly central sort of piece of their infrastructure. And that's always really gratifying to hear. Yeah, I remember when CoreSync came out and for sort of a few years afterwards, you know, Core, you know, many libraries would provide, if there was an asynchronous API, it would be a Core Async API. And that's maybe... I'm not sure if maybe I'm just paying less attention or it no longer surprises me anymore, but I don't feel like I see that so much anymore that people are doing less asynchronous stuff, maybe just because it's already been written or they sort of delegate. Like it just seems to be less common that core async is the API for, for new libraries. I mean, I think that's true. And there, you could kind of ascribe a lot of reasons to that. I think one of which is just that asynchronous is less cool than it used to be. And so having that be sort of a necessary component of your API is no longer seen as a you know requirement. I also think that Core Async just hasn't seen a lot of uptake on the server side of things. I mean, there are absolutely counterexamples of that. But I think where Core Async has seen a lot of use and I think provides the most value is in ClojureScript, mm. like in the front end. Yeah. And that also comes back to like in that case, it's not going and imposing its own execution model because JavaScript has its own execution model that is non-negotiable. So I think that in that case, like some of the downsides I articulated just frankly don't exist. And also there's fewer things that, you know, can do what it does. And so I think that that probably wasn't how it was conceived of at the time, but I think that, you know, ClojureScript was Corey Singh's killer app or possibly the other way around. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point and sort of considered the ClojureScript side of it so much. I've done a lot of work with Reframe, which sort of doesn't tend to use Core Async so much. It has its own queuing model and asynchronous execution. But I know certainly you know many other 
ClojureScript applications that don't use Reframe, and probably some that do use Reframe, use quite a bit of core async. And I, and I think most of the wrappers for like, you know, making an HTTP call or doing WebSocket communication or whatever, they all use core async because that, you know, it's a reasonable way to go and expose that in that uh, ecosystem, I think. Yeah. So there's other smaller libraries, I guess you've, you've written, uh, one that I sort of come back to, you know, I've used it over the years um, and still you know, use it today is ByteStreams, which is just a, <laughs> a, a very useful useful thing especially when you don't necessarily like i know it's fast enough that it's not a a poor performance tool by any means but especially when you don't really care about uh the transformations and you just want it you know sorry for, for people who are not aware byte streams is a a utility knife for byte representations is that the tagline i, I called it a rosetta stone for byte representations ah, yes. the the idea is that like there are many things in java or enclosure that represent um a collection of ordered bytes. So, you know, a byte array is the most obvious, but a byte buffer is uh, one that got, you know, introduced in Java 1.5 and is weirdly incompatible in some ways, or some APIs only accept one versus the other. And then, you know, you have strings and character sequences, which are clearly bytes with some additional metadata sort of atop them, but you want to be able to sort of convert from one to the other. And then when you start getting into closure specifically, you know, you have things where it's like, well, what if it's a sequence of byte containers, right? What if it's a sequence of strings? What if it's a query sync channel of strings or a manifold stream of, you know, strings or byte arrays or, you know, what have you. And, you know, all of these are isomorphic to each other in that like they contain the same core information, but all of the APIs expect them to look like a very particular type of representation, right? There is nothing that will go and just kind of like take whatever you give it and sort of find a way to go and make it into what it needs. Mm. And I mean, in fairness, like that's not what you really want in an API. An API should be strict in terms of what it accepts because otherwise like the performance characteristics there are, are unknowable. But you as the application writer, as the person who's gluing together these sort of strict APIs, you don't want to have to think overly much about how to convert this. So the idea was that I would come up with a bunch of these little piecewise conversions. Like how do you turn a sequence of byte buffers into a byte buffer? How do you turn a byte buffer into an array? How do you turn an array into a string? And so if you go and give it something, which is a sequence of byte buffers and say, I'd like this to be a string with, you know, a UTF-8 encoding, it'll go and just kind of compose together those stepwise transformations and poof, you have a string. And because this is sort of a graph of type conversions and each of them has sort of a cost associated with it, like how much copying of memory are we doing here? It can find the minimal path. So, uh, and then once it finds minimal path between, you know, point A and B, it'll memoize that so that it's not having to go and do that search repeatedly. And so, you know, there are some costs here. Certainly um, there's overhead of the initial sort of graph traversal. There's the, uh, overhead of the sort of memoized function, all this other sort of stuff. And so if you desperately care about performance, this is not what you should be using. But if all you really want to do is just kind of take data that's in some shape and turn into data that's some other shape uh, without thinking about it too much, then it's, it's a very useful tool. And yeah, I mean, I think that that's a very helpful piece and is used extensively inside Aleph to turn from like Netty's own peculiar byte containers into other sorts of things. And the nice thing about this is that it is an extensible graph. You can go and create an edge between the existing graph and some other representation you might come up with. And now you get that sort of transitive uh, transformability into all these other things for free. Nice. 
I guess a you know a more conventional way that this might have been written in closure land would be to use perhaps multi methods or uh, some other sort of implementation writing the is a this and this to this is a is this transformation, but not that wouldn't have been quite so extensible as as what you've come up with with the graph. Right. And and in fairness, I, I wrote little util namespaces that would do like piecewise like transformations like you describe a number of times before I finally broke down and tried to like generalize this because I try not to turn to the most absurd way to go and solve the problem immediately. <laughs> um, like I, I try to kind of keep myself a little bit honest there, but it is, I think if you're doing systems programming in closure, it just keeps on coming up. Right, it just keeps on coming up that you have to go and do this because you're getting bytes over the wire, but they're actually like they represent JSON, and so you have to go and do all these other sorts of things. And either you just create this sort of you know memory palace that has all of the conversions just kind of like sitting in it, or you you know create this you know ever increasingly large sort of utility namespace, or you just try to create something which is sort of an extensible version of that utility namespace. And and so yeah, I think that that's that's a uh, library that, you know, I still get a lot of use out of. And so, yeah, I, I think that that's probably one of my more successful sort of open source experiments. Great. Another thing that you're you know, pretty well known for is your work on data structures, high performance, functional data structures. And you've worked on quite a few of them over the years. And most recently with the... It's a B for con, I think is what you're searching for. Yes, 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 yes that's, that's the word. I didn't know that was the pronunciation. Uh, yeah, so it's actually, so sort of circling back to Aleph, um, I it's I have two different libraries that are named for a uh, Jorge Luis Borges story. He's like a this Argentine writer from the first half of the 20th century who was a librarian, but he wrote a lot of these little short stories and other sorts of essays about infinities, like how things sort of become absurd once they sort of hit their limit of infinity. And so the Aleph is a story about a guy who discovers that if he like walks down into his wine cellar and stares just beneath like the, you know, 12th step into the cellar, he sees a point from which he can see all points, which he calls the Aleph because that uh, the Aleph is a notation for infinity. And, uh, you know, obviously it's a completely ridiculous like premise and anybody plays around with it. And, you know, he has this sort of very sort of playful tone in a lot of his stories and uh, the idea of like a networking library being the point from which you can see all points seemed, you know, sort of apropos at the time. And so that's that's where that came from. And uh, B for Khan is from another story of his called uh, The Garden of Forking Paths. B for Khan means broadly it forks, I guess, in Spanish. It bifurcates, right? Hmm. That's one about a sort of this branching narrative where like there are many sorts of uh, paths through the story that are being sort of explored. Some people actually call it the first uh, narrative or like literary example of hypertext. Hmm. Um, I think there are actually a couple of people who have tried to go and rewrite the story as a hypertext sort of navigable narrative. And the reason that I called it that was so, you know, closure, of course, was, I think, very much at the forefront of, you know, so-called persistent or immutable or functional data structures, like have your pick as to what you call them. Hmm. I've sort of settled on functional because immutable implies like nothing can change and persistent implies that it's persisted to disk to a fairly large portion of the software community. <laughs> so I think functional is maybe the best thing, which is, you know, I, I take a function, I uh, return a new function, right? Like there's there's sort of a functional semantics associated with the API. 
And so Clojure uses the terms persistent and transient to talk about data structures, which do allow for sort of this like pure functional sort of semantics versus this mutable functional semantics, right? Like you give it a, a data structure, it still returns a new data structure, but it reserves the right to go and mutate that data structure in the process. And the use of transient is a little bit of a weird one because if you go and look at the literature around data structures, they actually prefer ephemeral, like persistent and ephemeral are mm. sort of antonyms to each other. Right. I don't know. I kind of like, I am extremely fussy about nomenclature as, as people who've read <laughs> my book may, may be aware. And neither of like the, the idea of sort of persistent versus ephemeral, like these feel like sort of things that you talk about again with sort of like storage devices, right? Like, you know, main memory is ephemeral memory. And like, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing where I just, it conjure is, it feels like the wrong analogy to me basically. And so the one that I settled on was this idea of, thinking about sort of the data flow. So if we're going in, we have a data structure, like typically where we use transient data structures is we have an empty data structure and we want to fill it with a bunch of stuff. So we go and we take it and we take this empty data structure and we congen a value and then we congen a thousand more values. And each time we're going and effectively discarding the previous version of that data structure, right? We don't care about it anymore. We only care about the most recent. And in that sort of case where you have this linear data flow where each time you're not holding on to the previous reference, you only care about the new one. And that previous value only exists to go and feed into the sort of accumulated uh, data structure that we're building. In my mind, that's sort of like a linear chain of that data structure sort of flowing through those method calls. In the cases where we actually want it to be quote unquote persistent, right, where we want it to have true immutable sort of semantics there is where that chain, that linear chain forks where it bifurcates, right? Where now mm. two people need to be able to own this data structure and we don't know what each of them is going to do with it. And so my terminology, which is entirely of my own invention, and I think this is a bad habit to not go and sort of like honor what, you know, the industry calls it or academia calls it. But in all those cases, I think it is like sufficiently niche and confusing that like I could kind of justify this is I called it a linear data structure, which is one that, you know, we assume the sort of linear data flow, we allow for mutation and a forked data structure, which is one where there are multiple owners or presumed to be multiple owners. And uh, therefore we need the sort of more classic, you know, structural sharing and partial copying and all that other sort of stuff. And so, you know, Bifurcon means forked or it forks. And so it seemed like sort of an appropriate name. Uh, you know, also, of course, all these data structures under the covers are trees. And so it kind of felt like it had sort of a slight dual meaning, uh, at least that I found amusing. And that's really the ultimate measure, whether I like a name is, does it amuse me? So, you know, that, that's sort of what I went with. Yeah, I had to sort of think a little bit about that. The linear name was not sort of immediately obvious to me, but uh, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I think that you could very rightly quibble with that, but like it's something where I was writing it as a, it is a Java library. Um, it is aimed at Java programmers because I feel like you know, Clojure has a lot of really interesting ideas. And like, even though its core library is largely written in Java, like those APIs were never meant for public consumption, right? And there are a few people who have gone and taken that and cleaned it up and changed the like hashing inequality semantics back to the standard Java variants. And then just expose this as a library. There's one called uh, Paguro, I think, uh, P-A-G-U-R-O that does this. And it's fine, but it's a little weird and like it will seem weird to anyone who doesn't understand the lineage of that code and understand like, oh, well, that's what it's called in Clojure, right? 
And so the idea was like, if we just kind of wipe the slate clean, don't worry about the context because we're trying to go and sell this to people who do not have this sort of like built in sort of communal understanding of like, here's why closure data structures are great. Here's what persistent means. Here's what transient means. If like you assume none of that, then I think that you can kind of be a little bit more free with the terminology and, you know, hopefully linear and fork makes a certain amount of sense, but you know, it's entirely possible that it doesn't, or, uh, you know, a more standard term would have been better in that case. And so this maybe isn't necessarily the best measure of a data structure, although it's very important, but uh, the performance of these data structures is extremely competitive with mutable uh, Java often, and certainly a lot faster in many cases than Clojure's built-in collections. Yeah, I mean, so Clojure, unfortunately, suffers from, like, equality semantics, which, I mean, I'm not going to go and litigate whether those were, like, sort of the right choices, but, like, the fact that it, for instance, says longs and big nums that represent the same value are equal, which is not true in Java. You can't go and check that a, a, you know, 1 and 1n are the same thing. So if, like, you call dot equals on that, then that will return false. And in Closure that was seen as something that was worth preserving, um, in part, I think, because closure having like auto overflow was seen as a huge value add for the language, which I think has not necessarily proven out. But again, you know, these are sorts of things that you expect to find in a Lisp is a, a sort of uh, rich numeric stack. So for that reason, though, like creating hashes and checking equality is significantly more expensive and largely because it's just large enough that it can't be easily inlined. And so doing simple things in closure, like adding a key to a map, which invokes all those equality semantics just costs more, right? So you compare it to Java, you compare it to Scala, you compare it to any of those sorts of things. And closure is just, you know, marginally, but, you know, measurably slower. The additional thing that I do in sort of B4Con though, that like is probably cheating in the eyes of anyone else whose libraries I'm comparing this with is I say, well, you know, we want to be able to switch between this kind of this mutable and immutable sort of representation, like this linear and forked. But there are cases where we never care about forking the data structure, right? And this is actually where a mutable data structure is fine, where like using a Java hash map is fine, is it's just local to some sort of scope or using it as a little accumulator. No one else will ever see it. No one else will ever like right to it. Therefore, why are we bothering with immutability in the first place? And so I said, I'm going to write variants of my data structures, which share the same API, but are just permanently mutable. Or rather, if you want to make them immutable, it'll create a little wrapper around it that will like, you know, make it so you can't write to it directly anymore. And we'll just kind of keep track of which keys have been like added and removed atop this sort of base data structure. And, you know, this is like legitimately cheating, if you're going and just saying like who's written the like the highest performance you know tree based data structures, but I think it speaks you know if you're sort of speaking to what are the actual workflows that people are using their data structures for, there are a great deal that don't require this kind of behavior at all. But we want to have the opportunity to if we need to go and sort of now take this data structure and pass it off to somebody else to make it something which has that functionality, right? And so. By saying I can instantiate this like map, this, you know, IMAP, right? This sort of generic map with either something which is permanently mutable or flexibly mutable and having that not change all the downstream code, not change the invocations, not change the sort of semantics in any sort of meaningful way, I think is uh, useful or, you know, hopefully is useful. So, you know, in that case, it's, you know, pretty easy to be competitive with Java because I'm just writing another mutable data structure. 
but it has, you know, the, the key difference here is that it has a functional API, one where you go and you pass in a collection and, you know, the thing you want to do to that collection, and it passes back a new collection, or at least passes back a collection, which might be the same thing. And so you don't have to think super hard about what are the semantics of this thing, except in the sort of, you know, is it in this moment, you know, immutable or immutable data structure. Great. Another data structure improvement change uh, you worked on was the unrolled tuples, um, <laughs> uh, both a library and then a, a patch to Clojure, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that ultimately didn't make it into Clojure. I wondered if you had any sort of thoughts on that, you know, anything you wanted to talk about in relation to that? Oh, yeah. I mean, this actually came out of some work I was doing on byte streams, right? Because byte streams, in byte streams, you're going and you're saying, hey, I want to look up what is the fastest path between this type and this type, like for conversions. And it turns out that in Clojure, doing that lookup is, in some cases, as expensive as simply doing the conversion. Mm. So like, because some of that stuff is very optimized, like going and turning a string into an array of bytes or something like that. Like that takes about 100 nanoseconds. And the lookup to find out how to do that also took 100 nanoseconds. And so I started looking at why that was. And the reason was that I was going and I was doing a lookup where I was instantiating a vector of, you know, the from type and the to type, Mm -hmm. and then doing the sort of lookup. And that was just slow because the tuples had to be instantiated in this sort of way where it's like, oh, I'm taking an arbitrarily sized vector and then adding two things. And then going and calculating a hash on that was like a little bit slower. And so there's like a few things that were just kind of small little losses of performance that were adding up to enough that now byte streams was sort of a measurably slower way to go and do this conversion. And so my my bright idea for how to fix this was, well, if we know that it's just going to be a two vector, right? It's just going to only ever contain two things. Why not create a special two vector, right? And, you know, for that matter, why not make a special one vector and zero vector and, you know, two and three and so on. Um, in my case, up to six, which was a fairly arbitrarily chosen thing, but I just kind of got sick of going and trying to deal with that stuff. And so I first wrote this as a sort of macro generated thing, and it worked pretty well, at least worked well for the use case I was coming up with, like that two tuple or like two vector lookup became measurably faster. And so I talked about this at a a conference and Rich was there and I was talking to him like over lunch and I said, you know, would you have any interest in putting this into closure? And he said, yeah, sure. As long as you write it in Java. (laughs) Uh, because closure data structures are written in Java. That's just how it is. And I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, I wrote this whole thing during using macros. I'll get back to you on that. Right. I don't, I don't know if I, I mean, because I mean, even if I were to just go and like take a agonizingly long day and type a bunch, I would probably make lots of little, you know, mistakes, you know, copy paste errors, all that other sort of stuff. And so I kind of let that hang there for a while, probably eight or nine months until for like a hackathon when I was working for Factual, I decided like, let's give this a shot. And the way that I decided to do that was I'm going to write Java that generate, I'm sorry, I'm going to write Clojure rather that generates the Java for this. The way I did that is I basically took some code from Eclipse that did Java indentation. I used that as basically a, a syntax check where I'd say, I'm going to go and create a big blob of Java that has no new lines in it. And then I'm going to go and pass it into this formatter. And if that's correct, then I'm going to assume that like it's reasonably well-formed, right? Maybe not semantically correct, but that's something that you can sort of test generatively. So that's that's pretty straightforward to go and do once you have the Java like all written out and compiled. And so 
it was a total hack, like sort of the sort of hack that I, I find like really kind of pleasing in a perverse way. And so I, I had that and then I kind of circled back and I said, hey, I've got this. I've got thousands of lines of Java that I've generated. Do you want this enclosure? Yes, no. And the response was uh, tentatively positive, right? Because, you know, anytime someone comes to you with a PR, which is just enormous, <laughs> like you, you want to go and say like, yeah, okay, well, you know, maybe, right? You know, certainly you don't want to just give a yes. And I sort of said like, look, you know, I just want to, you know, make sure that I'm spending time, you know, towards some sort of productive end. So just kind of like, let me know. I could also do the same thing for maps, if you like, because, you know, we could have a map of one, map of two. And in fact, Closure has two different types of maps. It has the hash map and the array map, where the array map is just like a flat list that you sort of linearly scan, right? There's no actual attempt to go and sort of like hash locate anything. And for every map smaller than eight elements, it will go and use that approach because that's sort of deemed to be a more efficient approach overall. And so like this had some prior art to it. And so they said, yeah, sure, go ahead. That'll be helpful just for like, you know, comparative purposes. So I, I wrote that. And this all took place over about 18 months, right? I was kind of chipping away at this, like just whenever the sort of mood took me, there's no one who was willing to commit on the other side to like, yes, let's go and sort of test this. But I, I did it. I wrote some benchmarks and I had kind of been pushing on this for a little bit. And then uh, at that point, finally, Rich entered the conversation, right? Because uh, the contribution process is that uh, there are some gatekeepers, it's, you know, Stu or Alex or, you know, whomever is are going and sort of making sure that the PR is sufficiently vetted, at which point Rich will sort of come in and consider it, in this case, like mostly for the first time. And so he looked at it and he said, you know, that's an awful lot of code. I think I can do this with, you know, I, I can go and get the same effect by doing less. And so he wrote up, you know, a much smaller thing that unrolled in a much less sort of aggressive way and said, if we're going to do this, this is what I'm going to use. And I was, I think at the time, pretty upset about that because it felt to me like, you know, if all I was doing was writing a proof of concept, like why all of the attempts to go and polish this and make this like a very, you know, complete and sort of, you know, production ready sort of PR. Like if all it was, was just say, here's a thing that Rich might want to write someday. And I think that like, I still think that that was sort of reasonable reason to kind of be upset about this. And I think that this is something that people have been caught in before. The reason that I can't go and really hold a grudge about it is because once Rich ran it and he put it into closure proper, which I had not done yet, right? I'd only sort of use it for a couple of cases like this sort of two tuple lookup. Um, and then like a couple of other tests that I had sort of run on some code, but I hadn't gone and like taken a version of closure with these new data structures, just kind of jammed in and, and seen what happened. He found that it wasn't actually faster on the whole because having seven different classes that implement vector make that actually less efficient in terms of dispatch, right? It's what's called megamorphic dispatch where, you know, Java can no longer do clever things in terms of being able to figure out which implementation it should go and route to when you go and call, you know, conj, for instance. Mm. And this is not something that I had like tested in any sort of way. And, you know, to be fair, I've still not seen Rich's benchmarks for any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, I've not. Like you just said, this is slow. I think it's because of megamorphic dispatch. And like that parses, right? That is a thing that I think is quite possible. I have no idea what he was testing on. I have no idea what his methodology was. It is genuinely something that I had not thought of up until that point, right? My sort of enthusiasm had sort of pushed me. I had not stopped to consider that sort of side of things. And so 
I'm happy to go and kind of say that like, you know, that was my bad, right? It was a less good idea than I thought it was. If it had turned out to be exactly as good an idea as I thought it was, and then my implementation not made it into closure proper, I think I would have probably held a little bit of frustration there still because it's a little bit weird to be, you know, trying to contribute and then finding that actually, you know, you're just providing sort of a, a general sketch of what will, you know, at one point be in the code, because I think that there's a, a pride that you derive from saying like, I like closure, I use closure. Closure is in part code that I've written, right? Like that last part is, I think, to at least a certain sort of person in the open source community, a really key part of what motivates them and makes them feel like closure's ongoing success is something that they are very invested in. Um, at, at the very least, I feel like I'm one of those people and I've known other people who I think get frustrated with closure for the same reason. But I will say very explicitly in this case for the unrolled tuples, that is not something that I, I harbor any great sort of frustration or sort of uh, resentment about because turns out it was not nearly as good of an idea as I thought it was, or at the very least there's a plausible reason for why it wasn't. Right. Yeah, that's that's good. I, I don't think I kind of had all of that context all in in one place in one conversation. I sort of picked up different bits and pieces. Yeah, I, I don't think I never did a write up of it. Possibly that was a bad idea because I've seen people kind of use that whole experience as an example of like, you know, here's why the Cognitect like contribution process is like no good. And I mean, again, there is an alternate version of this sort of thing where like that actually I think is a legitimate point to make. But in the, this case where, you know, it turns out that my idea was not well suited to be in the core language, right? It still may be good as a standalone library because you know, if you're using it for something where you don't have many different sizes of vectors or something like this, it, it is legitimately faster, but it is not well suited for the general purpose, like closure implementation because of that. So I think that it, it's not something that people should use as, you know, the shining example of why, you know, people are are getting frustrated with, you know, closure's contribution process. Sure. But one thing in that, I think that sort of, there's probably a few things we could take from that process. One was, I guess, the expectations or communication about expectations where it sort of seems like there was perhaps a mismatch of what you thought you were doing and what the likely outcome or response was going to be and then what it actually turned out to be those didn't seem to be aligned yeah well and i i mean so i'd, I'd seen uh, i've been working with uh, kyle kingsbury uh who's better known as like a around that same time and he had gone through a similar process where keyword interning enclosure was fairly slow for reasons that were not intrinsic to how keywords worked, right? But if you went and you, you tried to convert a string into a keyword, it, it would take a long time to the point where converting like or, or parsing rather JSON, where you wanted all these keys to be keywordized, the major computational cost there was just turning strings into keywords. And so he went through a similar exercise where he came up with a big sort of, or like not even a very large PR, but like, you know, a 20 line sort of change or something like that. Went through all the hoops in terms of demonstrating that this is indeed faster, there are no regressions, et cetera. And then in the end, Rich took his PR and rewrote it. So then, you know, Rich is like, well, thanks for the, you know, recommendations as to how I could go and I could fix this. I, having seen that play out, I thought I was being very clever by like checking in periodically saying, you still want me to do this, right? This is still a thing that you want. And I was assured along the way, like, yes, yes, this is this is good. This is great. What I assumed, I guess, was that when, you know, someone who was at Cognitech told me that, that that was on the basis of some sort of conversation they were having, right? That was a 
collective assurance as opposed to a personal assurance from, you know, Stu Holloway or something like that. And it turns out that it wasn't. And, you know, looking back, I can't point to anything that like made me reliably infer that like this was Cognitech as an entity giving me this sort of assurance. But when in fact, basically what it was is that, you know, someone's like saying, yeah, I'm pretty sure Rich will like this when he takes time to look at it. And then Rich took the time to look at it and didn't like it. And so I, I think that the assumptions that I had going in were wrong. And I think that like, it's interesting because there's a little bit more recent drama with Closure, which, you know, we can talk about if you would like to, but like, basically I was going and sort of voicing some of my frustrations, which again, are not because like my data structures didn't make it into Closure, but because I see people who want to make Closure something that they feel some degree of ownership over are being turned away basically. And from that, they sort of lose a lot of their motivation to continue to invest in the community and end up sort of going elsewhere, right? Some of them more loudly than others, right? Like, so, you know, Chaz Emmerich, for instance, has largely vanished. He's writing Haskell these days. And um, he wrote a book. He contributed a ton to the closure community. And then, you know, one day he just stopped showing up. And like, I can't speak for him and, you know, all of his sorts of reasons, but I think that, you know, he has articulated to me that like he's definitely seen a shift in terms of how people were encouraged to go and sort of help shape closure as sort of a collaborative process versus sort of this very top-down sort of autocratic process. And it's undeniable that that has changed, right? You know, the NS macro in closure was not created by Rich. It was created by Steve Gilardi. Hmm. Originally, you were just encouraged to go and put a bunch of like imports and requires and whatever as like the prelude to uh, your thing. There wasn't a single sort of NS macro that did all of those things. And, you know, try to imagine someone today coming up with a different way to do namespace declarations in Clojure, right? Try to imagine someone going and saying, I've got a great new idea for like the ergonomics of Clojure. Like that, it it wouldn't even make it like off of the initial sort of post, right? People would just be like, yeah, sorry, this is never going to happen. And and in fairness, right? So like there's this kind of concept in uh, neurophysiology called plasticity, which is like basically how quickly does your brain sort of reshape itself in uh, response to like incoming stimuli. And children have extremely plastic brains. Adults have much less plasticity in their brain, which is probably good, right? Because, you know, when you're a child, you're changing a lot. You're going through all these sorts of things. You, you want to sort of reach this level of maturity and stability. You don't want to go and just kind of shake things up all the time just because you can. And so I'm not saying like, you know, why aren't we able to go and sort of rewrite closure from like release to release or something like that? But I think it's fair to say that there has been a change and that there was a time when closure was a more collaborative process. And to pretend that it has never been that, which I think is sometimes a talking point that sort of comes up is false, right? To say that it shouldn't be that is fair. And I think that is a defensible kind of stance, though not necessarily one that I agree with. But uh, some people say like, oh, you know, like it's always just been Rich's thing. And it's, there's never been sort of external sort of input. There's never been meaningful changes to how the language is written by people who are like not working for Cognitector or not, you know, Rich himself isn't true, right? It's just that like that time where that, that was sort of a reasonable expectation about how the language was maintained has passed. Yeah. And I think either of those approaches are valid ones to take, but probably my frustration or my feelings about it was that the issue was that it wasn't explained particularly clearly this new model or this new intention. And maybe maybe it wasn't even sort of consciously understood by Cognitect 
as they were doing it, it just was sort of a, a natural shift. But uh, you know, it's sort of it was frustrating to see you know people new to closure get excited, come up with some ideas, see some possible you know improvements, and then to sort of just you know hit the brick wall mm-hmm. and sort of not necessarily understand why like what's what's going on they they come to closure with you know closure is an open source project and they have a bunch of assumptions about how that works and there was no documents being extremely clear until recently being extremely clear about no this is a very different kind of project and you know we don't work the same as as other projects and that's again like as we're kind of alluding to in rich's most recent post he had no necessarily obligation to explain himself but it certainly would have saved a lot of time and energy and frustration on a lot of people's parts. Certainly. And I should say, like, you know, you say like it hasn't been written up anywhere. Like the only written record of like Clojure's contribution process, which approaches like a sort of honest, straightforward articulation uh, is in a gist on GitHub, right? And there's like a follow-up conversation in the comments of that gist. Like it's not on closure.org. It's not like, this is not something where I think it is discoverable by people who are coming to closure. So I think that there's still work that could be done there unless I'm wrong. And there has been some sort of change to closure.org without me noticing. But I think that talking about it in terms of uh, incompatible, unspoken assumptions is exactly right. And, you know, something that came up repeatedly was Evan Chaplicki, who's the creator of the Elm language, uh, gave a really great talk at Strange Loop last year called The Hard Part of Open Source. And in it, he talked about sort of what's hard about open source is not the technology, it's not the technological decisions, it's the people and sort of navigating those conversations. And in that, he brought up the by whose authority, or the, you know, better known as the closure post, right? Which is the first sentence in that post. And it kind of, you know, doesn't get much better from there. And you know, people talk about sort of entitlement in open source, and I think it is undeniably a deeply entitled post. And it's not one that I like, and it's not one that I'm very happy with because I think it poisoned the well for having a more constructive and meaningful conversation where what's being said by the community isn't very easily dismissed as just like more closure basically, right? And that's very frustrating to me. But I think that there is a real point that's being made in Evan's talk, which is not people shouldn't be mean to open source creators, right? I mean, that is a point that he makes. And there is a point that people are doing that, but it's not just like you should shut up and be grateful. What he's saying is that people don't state their assumptions when they go make an assertion that something is true or ought to be true, right? People are going and predicating what they're saying and they have very strong opinions But what is left unstated is like the assumption that goes and sort of gives birth to that very strongly held view. And I I actually talk about this a little bit in my book, not about open source stewardship, but like I say, you know, if you say that software is over-engineered, that's not an intrinsic property of the software. It's a property of where you expect that software to be used, right? Something which needs to, you know, a piece of hardware, which needs to go and survive cosmic rays, if it's not going into space or some other sort of place where that's a problem, then yeah, it's over-engineered. It probably has more complexity or more cost than it needs to. But again, that's not an intrinsic property of the thing. It's a property of where we put the thing. And so similarly, when we're talking about like, what can we reasonably as a community expect from someone who is the creator and you know ongoing steward of a language is not, I think, something that we can talk about from first principles, right? Or at least is not most 
interesting to talk about from first principles because the only first principle that's really available is it's his language. He gets to do what he wants, which is undeniably true, right? But what's not discussed in that conversation is there are norms that exist in open source in terms of what is expected, right? If people come together and start working on a language and form a community around that language, and if there's a company that's formed around the stewardship of that language, the general expectation is ongoing maintenance of that language is a first-class concern, and that having the language reflect a plurality of perspectives and uses is valuable because that will allow the community to to grow, to allow the language to be used in ways that the creator never necessarily expected. It will kind of flourish and go off in directions that, you know, no one could have predicted, basically. That assumption, which I think is reflected in many other successful languages, is not valid in Clojure. Again, this is not meant to be a value judgment where I'm saying it ought to be. I think it was certainly surprising to me to find that it wasn't. And I'm not trying to go and say that things should change necessarily, but I think that to go and pretend that people are being entitled just because they expect Clojure to be maintained the way that other major open source languages are like maintained is I think very odd and a little bit victim blamey, right? Because I think that, you know, if you're trying to read some of this from first principles, then, you know, the broader societal context around how open source works, maybe that doesn't matter, but that's not how people think. And I don't think that that's a good way to go and think about it. And so I think that that's why people feel frustrated is that, Never is there a conversation about, here's how open source normally works. We acknowledge that. And we want it to work differently because of these reasons that we give or just because uh, that's how we want it to work. Like any of that would be, I think, a, a huge improvement to the current sort of thing, which is closure exists in a universe unto itself. We do not acknowledge other methodologies or other expectations that people might bring with them from other communities it's up to you to figure out how things work here. You should go and just kind of treat this as a blank slate. And, you know, people reason by analogy. People go and make inferences and they fill in what they don't know with things they know from things that they believe to be similar, right? Other projects that they've worked with. And so it's unsurprising when people are surprised and it's unsurprising when people are frustrated. And I think that it is reasonable for people to go and, you know, ask why this hasn't been more clearly articulated. Rich is an extremely articulate, thoughtful person And I have no doubt that he has thoughts on this. There have been conversations I've had with him. I had one at the most recent conj. I don't really feel like it's my place to go and sort of try to characterize what he said to me. But these are not things that he's said or tried to go and write down outside of the heat of the moment. And I think that that's unfortunate. I think that it it leads to far more acrimony than is at all necessary. Yeah, (laughs) I think I feel feel similar. And over the last year or so, as sort of the, the blowups became more and more frequent, you know, culminating in, in Rich's post, I think at least, you know, I know, you know, I had people talk to me and say, you know, they felt hurt by that and that they didn't feel respected or other things. But I definitely feel like at least it kind of put, it brought clarity to the situation where there was little before. And so people were free to, to superimpose their own views over you know how they thought the situation was working and then you know it was only months or years later when they when that didn't align that they became frustrated so at least i guess people at least now have a better idea of what to expect or what not to expect uh, which is which is something right though again i think that you know one of the things that i raised was that you know the community is not growing like it used to 
And, you know, I have thoughts on why that might be. And I don't think that they all relate to just like, you know, closure has been mismanaged. I think that closure got an enormous boost from coming out at the height of the sort of Paul Graham lisp mania. Mm. And I think that, you know, that was a lot of fertilizer from which it could grow. But I think that there was maybe an implicit assumption that like all of that was down to closure and closure being intrinsically excellent or intrinsically well sort of, you know, maintained or something like that. And that was just sort of a growth trajectory that we could expect to continue indefinitely. And it couldn't, right? I mean, you know, once the hype sort of dried up, then I think that, you know, closure had to go and very much succeed or fail on its, you know, own merits there. And I think that, you know, it's certainly continued to grow, but much less rapidly than before. And so maybe it matters less. Maybe the fact that like the people who were around for the, you know, great closure debate of 2018 know now that like, this is how the language is maintained is good enough. But I still think it's curious that there hasn't been something which is just there to talk like on closure.org is just, you know, welcome to closure. Here's how we think about language design questions. Here's how we think about, you know, data and immutability. And here's how we think about open source stewardship, right? I, I, th- these things I think could all be together somewhere in a, you know, well, clearly articulated sort of place. And that's not the case right now. And and I'm not wholly sure why. Yeah. And I guess going back to growth, I think that growth is another assumption that, uh, you know, people have when they come to a language or a project that's implicit in, in what they expect is like, you know, the creator wants this to grow and that everybody involved wants this to continue growing and growing and growing. And that's just sort of like a unstated implicit good. And I'm not necessarily sure that's like a value that closure holds. I don't think they don't want growth, but uh, certainly uh, growth is definitely not the number one priority. I would think that'd be pretty, you know, I think most people would probably agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. I think that closure's growth is certainly not the primary concern. And it's not clear to me that it ought to be. Because I think that, you know, you can go and you can easily, you know, make a case for a tool being niche, like useful to a uh, certain problem or a certain person who has a sort of perspective on software. Uh, So it's not inherently bad to like not be chasing growth at all costs. I think that the most worrisome thing, though, to me was in terms of the response Rich had to like some of the criticisms that were coming from the community was that he talked about all the work that had been done on the error messages as work that had effectively come out of his pocket, right? He talked about, you know, he had paid his retirement into the initial development of closure. He hasn't made that back. And so seeing community oriented improvements, right? Things that don't necessarily reflect his use of closure to say, write Datomic, right? Uh, things that are, are aimed at beginners rather than the experts that Cognitech employs as um, a gift as a, a thing that, you know, uh, is not actually financially viable in and of itself. That's deeply worrisome to me, right? Growth, even if it's not a foremost concern, should at the very least be a profit center for the people who are running closure. If work that is uh, in the aid of growth uh, is something that like is costly and distracting and, you know, generally not aligned with, you know, the other motivations that they have, then I think the consequences of that are, are 
predictable or it's, it's pretty uh, clear sort of where that leads in the long term. With no visibility into, you know, any of this, like, you know, how old Atomic's doing, what, you know, Rich's finances are like, like, I mean, and, and you know, nor should I or should anyone in the community expect to have that level of visibility. All I can say for sure is that it seems like the community is seen as a cost center. I don't know how you would realign that, right? Because I don't know how we got here. I don't think it was clear to me until that post that that's how it was seen. But that's the part that worries me the most because that's the part that makes me think that it's going to be hard to do even slight course corrections in, you know, to the aid of having people who come here with these expectations based on like how other open source projects are run and not have those be totally, you know, overturned, right? And I mean, it's possible that growth can be a non-goal and closure will continue to grow, like uh, despite that, or, you know, uh, at least it won't be sort of hampered by that. But it does mean that things that are in the purview of Cognitect alone, like error messages, which are hard to kind of bolt on to the language outside of the core, are probably going to be fairly slow to arrive. And it's going to be contentious because it's going to be seen as this great gift that's being bestowed upon the community as opposed to just like a thing which, you know, naturally one would do because the community is the source of, you know, your continued consulting income or what have you. Yeah. And I'm not, it doesn't seem clear to me that any course corrections are coming either, that there's any going to be any difference or changes. Although I should point out Alex Miller's weekly roundup of what he's been working on with Clojure. I really enjoy. I think it's you know, it's really useful getting a bit of an insight into what's being worked on. So I wouldn't say it's, you know, nothing has changed, certainly. No, and, and I want to be perfectly clear because I don't think I was, and I think that I was needlessly hurtful by like sort of painting with this broad brush. I think that there is individual work that's being done, which is absolutely community oriented with Alex at the forefront of that. And I think that is not something that should be taken for granted. I don't think that it's something which we are like inherently owed and, you know, can be sort of like freely ignored. I frankly wish I had said this earlier in this conversation, but like, I'm worried about like, what are the structural incentives here? Because, you know, if the entirety of like sort of the community engagement is born from, you know, Alex Miller just being willing to sort of do that in spite of everything to make the case for that. If, if it's something where like, you know, a bad quarter at Cognitect might go and sort of change whether or not he's allowed to do that. That's cause for concern, I think, right? And to talk about sort of that the structure is misaligned doesn't impugn the, you know, good intentions or motivations of any of the individuals that exist within that structure. But, you know, I, I think it's hard sometimes to go in and uh, speak separately about the two. And so, you know, I just want to say, you know, if I've ever given someone who's worked very hard on behalf of the closure community cause to think that I take what they've done for granted or don't appreciate what they've done. Uh, that's, that's not true. But I don't think that that is by itself reason to not criticize sort of, you know, the overall sort of direction that these things are taking or the motivations that we can infer from, you know, what is said whenever there's sort of a flare up within the community. So another large project you've been working on more recently and you know finished uh, just in the last few months, I think, was The Elements of Closure, which is a book about, it's not quite a style guide for closure, it's, it's a bit more than just, just that. So do you want to talk a little bit about what is it, why did you create it? Well, uh, it did actually start out as effectively a style guide for closure. Yeah. 
So I was back in the day doing meetups. I'm currently sort of still running the uh, Bay Area closure meetup. And when I was at Factual, we were hosting regular office hours where we encourage people to sort of come in and just pair up. Uh, you know, we weren't going to try to have a lecture or anything like that. We were just going to go and sort of make sure that people who knew about some facet of closure and people who wanted to learn about some facet of closure would be able to find each other and sort of chat about that. Because I thought that that's sort of what happens in the margins of a typical meetup, like at the beginning, at the end. And I, to my mind, that's often the most valuable part of it because, you know, you will have good talks and bad talks, but it's very rare that a talk will be of interest to everyone who's attending. And so I thought, like, let's just go and try to take that out and see if there's still, you know, something worthwhile left over. And something that I was noticing a lot was that people were coming in who liked closure, had learned closure, were trying to advocate for closure being used inside their company. But they were extremely tentative because they were coming in as the advocate for closure and therefore the presumptive sort of expert on it. And they were extremely worried about being right in terms of how they talked about like how one should use closure. You think that closure is sort of peculiar, or at least, you know, somewhat more extreme in terms of the impetus that it puts on being very thoughtful in your design and coming up with like the right design. And so if they were going and saying, oh, well, you know, here's how you structure your namespaces. And then it turns out that that's not true because they hire someone who is, you know, an experienced closure developer and they come and they look at it and say, well, you know, what on earth is this? Like that was actually a meaningful impediment to them even advocating for closure being adopted at their company, right? Because they felt like they would have to go and take on a role of authority that they weren't comfortable with. And I thought that that was a shame. And I thought that that was something that like was clearly hampering growth and adoption. So I thought, what if there was a book that would take the guesswork out of it, would say, here are some reasonable ways to go and approach the writing of closure. These are not the only ways. These are not the you know canonically right ways to do it, but they're solid. They're good enough. And if you go and you keep on writing code and eventually you hit the point where you know these guidelines are no longer serving you well, toss them out. You've outgrown them. And so I was kind of saying like, this is a good sort of second book to read about closure because it goes and just sort of says, here are some, you know, norms that we can establish. And some of them reflect what's already happening in the community. Some of them reflect what like I personally, as an opinionated person think ought to be happening in the community. And then at the, you know, the end of the day, there's some people who think that I'm wrong. And then a bunch of other people who like, you know, ideally would hopefully just kind of happily follow this stuff because it, gets them out of their own head and stops them from just kind of getting wrapped around the axle of, you know, but is it the right thing to do? And so that was the initial motivation for the book. And that's why the book was originally called Elements of Closure, because it was meant to be very much like in the sort of strunk and white style of, well, sure, it's not right, but at least it's like a reasonable set of defaults to kind of follow. Hmm. But as I started to write it, I realized that my ambitions were somewhat deeper than I had originally realized. <laughs> and, you know, this is exacerbated the fact that like, you know, after effectively writing the first chapter, I quit my job to kind of focus on it full time because I, I wanted to sort of get this right. And what I realized was that I wasn't just trying to go and say, here's some like decent guidelines, because when it comes down to it, like with a style guide, you can talk about like the appearance of the code, but to talk about sort of the conceptual layout of the code isn't something that you can write a style guide about right? There's not a right way to go and, you know, build interfaces. That's just sort of like check off the boxes it, because I, the author don't know the domain that the software is interacting with as well as the person who's reading it. 
And so I can't go and tell them what to do. All I can do is sort of give them a framework that they can combine with their domain knowledge to come up with like what they think is a reasonable sort of answer. And so creating a conceptual framework is, it turns out, a lot harder than coming up with a style guide. And so that was what I sort of fell into. And so what was originally going to be, I was going to quit my job. I was going to spend three months finishing the book. And then I was going to go <laughs> off and work on a whole bunch of other things. And it ended up being, I quit my job. I spent 16 months writing the book and then like some amount of time going and like finalizing the manuscript and everything like that. And, you know, throughout that, I was releasing chapters and getting feedback from readers and other things. And, you know, I'm, I'm of course, you know, hugely grateful to everyone who sort of stuck with me through the roughly three year process of this book getting finished. Like that's sort of what it turned into. And that's why it became a much broader thing. And I mean, this just kind of comes back to scope creep, which I've always been bad about. And, you know, I think that at the end of it all, I'm happy with the result in as much as it more clearly articulates sort of my sensibilities about software and the sort of conceptual framework that I, I struggled to put into words at the beginning of writing this book. What I'm less thrilled about is that, you know, having taken this book, which is a fairly general book about software design and having used Clojure as the uh, example language, I think cuts down on the potential audience for the book, the people who would go and like, you know, take the time to go and sort of read through it. It cuts it down quite drastically. And so I recently sort of mentioned, you know, on Twitter and on the mailing list for the book and, you know, other places that I've been considering a book, which is not exactly a rewrite of the book, but is maybe like kind of a spiritual sequel to it, which will just be called, or at least tentatively called Principles of Software Design which will attempt to kind of cover the same territory without the closure specific aspects. And, you know, that book will have to be more general because closure has certain idioms. The language just kind of feeds you into, makes it very hard to sort of fall outside of. And so there are a lot of questions about like classic object oriented design with sort of mutable objects that you don't need to talk about in, in a book about closure, mm. right? That you don't need to go and sort of articulate how these different ideas sort of play with that style of software design. And so that's something that I need to think about a lot more, frankly, and sort of, you know, be able to sort of have that be something that fits into this conceptual framework I've built around, you know, specific use of closure. But I think that's going to be worthwhile and interesting. And, and my hope is that, you know, in the meantime, people who don't use closure professionally or whatever else are able to look past the parens and kind of, you know, take the the more general lessons from my book. But I think that in order to really have the impact that I would like to have, it's it's going to have to be a book that doesn't mention closure and doesn't use Lisp as this kind of teaching language, right? Because I think that from just a pedagogical sort of perspective, Lisp is a not a very friendly language, right? It's something that people are not going to go and happily learn just for the purposes of reading the book. You never know. It's possible. I mean, sick P may be the counterexample there, but you know, I'm not Gerald Sussman, so I, I think I have to be a little more uh, humble in terms of like what sort of, you know, bridges people are willing to cross just to sort of meet me on the other side. Yeah, people, you know, switch to Emacs just for Maggot. So, yeah. It, it's possible. I don't know. I think that that will require people to be very, very effusive about the book. And so, you know, people want to start, you know, singing the praises of Elements of Closure, you know, please go ahead, prove me wrong. But <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want to predicate my sort of expectations on that happening. I will say that, you know, some people have said some very kind words to me, you know, uh, in private and publicly. And, you know, of course, that is very nice to hear, especially given like the amount of time 
um, and energy that I sort of put into this. But yeah, I mean, I think that it's hard, right? You know, a book will never matter as much to anyone as it does to you, the author, right? That's just kind of necessarily the case. And so, you know, at this point, I'm just trying to not get too presumptuous in terms of like, you know, what I can and can't expect from, you know, the broader sort of audience of software engineers. Yeah. Were there any recommendations that you made in the book, which people disagreed about that said, you know, actually, you know, I think this is not a good recommendation or? I tried to, in the cases where I made what I thought was being kind of a, a somewhat overly broad sort of statement, I tried to articulate a couple of cases where that advice didn't apply. So to use kind of a very basic example, I say that variadic keyword params, yep. right? So like having a function that where you have the ampersand map destructuring so that you can go and just add a bunch of like keyword parameters uh, to the function shouldn't be used. You should instead have like pass in an actual option map. And the reason for that is oftentimes the option map is being passed many layers down into the code and having to go and sort of put that back into a map and then sort of, you know, destructure to go and call the next thing. It's actually fairly laborious. It makes the code more complex to sort of read. Like in general, we should just go and put things in, in a map and not try to go and have it be sort of magically destructured just so we can remove one set of curly braces from our code. The case that I give of where that's not the case, though, is like if you're going and doing macros, because in macros, typically you're not going and calling many layers deep because it's happening at compile time, not at runtime. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, I think someone can read this and be like, well, I like keyword params, right? I like having that be, you know, how my code looks and everything. It seems cleaner. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that's fine, right? I mean, they're clearly wrong. And I, but no one sent me an angry email saying, how dare you? <laughs> like, you know, uh, so I don't know. I, I'm sure that there are many small pieces of advice that I give that people will happily ignore. And I think it's important when you give that sort of advice, which is overly broad to go and sort of articulate at least an example of something where like this does not apply. And if you find a similar case, like, you know, you should be free to not like treat this as gospel. But I do think that, you know, for the most part, where the advice is specific, it's not super controversial. And where the advice is broad, I think it's easy for someone to interpret it in whatever way they choose. So I, I think that, you know, I hopefully there's no deeply angry readers of this, right? I think that there's some people who maybe were hoping for something that was much more concrete and specific. And to them, I can just say, you know, I'm sorry, like, I, I don't know how to write that book. Like, I don't think that the subject matter I was trying to cover allows for that much specificity because otherwise it just becomes a book about software in a, that specific domain. Yeah. You know, I really enjoyed Elements of Closure and I know, you know, I've seen lots of companies in particular sort of, you know, buy a copy for everyone in the team and, you know, say, you know, have shared discussions about it. And it's, it's sort of built a shared, a shared context, which previously was implicit. One part I really liked in particular, one example of that was the, the quote, functions can do three things, pull new data into scope, transform data already in scope or push data into another scope. Experienced closurists kind of know that implicitly, but it would be quite hard to put into words potentially for many of them. They wouldn't know exactly why they feel, you know, that some code is wrong. Right. Some function does too much. Yeah. Or like that's great to hear because I think that was very much the goal is there's a thing, you know it, you feel it, right? There's a visceral feeling when you look at some sort of code and you know it's not quite right. But when you're talking to someone who wrote it, like who might be a more junior engineer who you're mentoring, who you're trying to go and 
like share your experience with, all you can say is that feels wrong, right? Mm. <laughs> Which is a dissatisfying way to go and sort of try to mentor somebody is to just go and like tell them no periodically, right? Ideally, you can kind of help them find their way to like, what is the broader principle at play here rather than treat them as like some sort of like supervised machine learning model or something like that. So that is very much the goal. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And I, you know, I've thankfully heard that from, you know, other people as well and everything, but, you know, there is, I think, just an interesting problem with a lot of industry books about software design and like in preparation for the sort of second book, I've, I've just ordered a bunch of them. Like every book I could find that seems to talk about software design, I, I ordered a used copy of it and have been sort of paging through it. And, you know, there's a, you know, a term that gets thrown around a lot, which is heuristic, which is, you know, that's what we, we use to go and sort of come up with like, you know, what's good design and software, right? You know, we have a heuristic, which is the rule of three. Like if you go and you write code three times, then you can generalize it, but not before, right? And there, there are lots of things that you kind of do this. There are also like con uh, contradictory heuristics, like you should um, write code to be deleted rather than modified, right? We're not going to go and we're not going to, you know, try to generalize it. We're just going to go and like write a thing. And if that's ever not useful, we'll just go and we'll, we'll throw it away and we'll write a new thing. I'm not a big believer in the like dictionary definition as a motivating kind of, you know, idea for a talk or for a design principle or whatever. But uh, the etymology of heuristic is interesting in that it uh, comes from the Greek heurika, as in I've found it. And I think that that's kind of what all heuristics are. They're this sort of like intuitive leap into the void, right? It's going to take time for us to go and sort of walk our way back and figure out what is the actual principle at play. But we know that we've, we've found a thing. But we also know like about heuristics or something that uh, Gerald Weinberg uh, sort of observes in his introduction to general systems thinking is that heuristics don't tell us when to stop. Like, so a heuristic is a bounded tool. Like it, it doesn't apply universally. It's meant to be applied within a particular context or scope. But no heuristic goes and describes what its scope is. It just like makes itself out to be the sort of universal truth. Mm. And that's how you can get into a situation where you have contradictory heuristics because they exist in bipartite scopes, but you don't know what they are. And so the problem with heuristics are that they require expert knowledge to apply properly. <laughs> and that's like kind of a bad place to be if you're trying to go and write something, which is like an intermediate level book on software design, which is full of, you know, little... Uh, nuggets of wisdom that you need to have already like learned uh, well enough to apply, you know, to, in order to apply properly, you already need to have outgrown the book effectively. Um, it's something that only really makes sense looking backwards once you've sort of surpassed the text. And so I think that that characterizes a lot of conversations I see like in a day-to-day -day sort of like, you know, software shop where people are going and sort of quoting different heuristics at each other which may sort of support their point without any necessarily understanding of like, is this applicable here? Right. Because that's just kind of this argument from authority of like, well, you know, you know what they say about the rule of three, right. You know what they say about never optimizing, you know what they say about never optimizing, except in that important 3%. Like th there's all these sorts of things that we sort of use as a proxy for actually understanding this. And, and my hope is from like elements of closure and certainly in the, the new book that I'm writing that, it's not just a collection of heuristics. It's actually a collection of concepts. And from those concepts, the, the sort of heuristics fall out. But what also falls out of that is an intuition for where they are meant to be applied. Like, what is the interrelationships between these things, right? Where is one applicable and, you know, where is the other applicable? 
I mean, I genuinely don't know if I'm going to achieve the, the goal that I just described there, but I, I think that it is a an absence in the literature today that I've kind of recognized. And, and if not, you know, me, I think someone ought to go and sort of try to fill that because I think that right now we're not talking about software design in a particularly articulate way, right? We talk about names, we talk about abstractions, we talk about all these sorts of things without really defining what we mean. And a lot of it just comes down to who's sort of the loudest voice in the room. And that's a, that's a bad place to be as an industry, I think, right? I mean, we are a relatively new field, but it seems like there, there's a lot of room to kind of do better there. So that's the goal. And I think that as far as career goals go, I think that like being able to explain that more effectively is sort of what's motivating me right now. And that's kind of why when I was looking for a new job, after I sort of came off of this, you know, book sabbatical, I chose a job which, you know, is not a closure job because I thought that the most interesting software design problem I could find happened to be outside of that, you know, sort of domain. And that makes me very sad. And I think that I had very much hoped and, you know, had sort of held on to hope that I could make sort of closure home for myself, not least because people know me in this community and I get, you know, more leeway to go and kind of like try things out the way that I want to try them out and all that other sort of stuff. But, you know, also just because, again, closure fits the way that I think and it, it makes me happy to be able to express my ideas in that language. But ultimately, at this point, what matters more to me is being able to refine my ideas about software design in the general case outside of any particular language by going and working on what I consider to be the most interesting problem and uh, the, the sort of the media sort of software design problem. And so, yeah, I, I announced recently that I'm going to work at Microsoft on the Semantic Machines team, which is doing natural language processing, and they are a Scala shop. And so I am now the proud owner of the Martin Odersky Scala book, which I'm kind of slowly <laughs> making my way through. And I mean, you know, it's fine. I, I, I'm, it doesn't fill me with that same kind of excitement as Clojure did at the outset. And, and it's possible that I'll never be as excited about a language as I was about Clojure, right? Maybe that's just sort of something that happens at some phase in your career um, or at some age or whatever. But it's a sad thing. And I think that part of why I was as vocal as I was last year was because I was realizing that. I was realizing that the jobs... I was looking at the sort of job landscape and what I could work on. And I realized that there were so many opportunities that took me away from closure. And the thing, the opportunities that would sort of keep me within closure were not as exciting to me. The problems were not as exciting to me. And that's not a, a absolute truth. That's just going to continue on to the future indefinitely. But I think that I struggle to articulate, like, what are the driving forces that are going to kind of reverse that trend? I don't know what those are. Right. And I think that certainly I am not the person to reverse them. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where I find myself. Mm. Yeah. I felt, you know, when I saw your announcement, you know, there was, you know, I'm, I was happy for you. I was also sad, sad for myself and for the community that, I mean, we're not losing you. You're not, it's not like you're slicing yourself off completely from the closure community, but I imagine you'll have less time and attention for closure stuff in the future. I think so. I mean, you know, in fairness, I've been a pretty absentee maintainer of my closure open source libraries for a number of years now, because I've just kind of, my, my attention has been elsewhere. And, you know, the goal behind those libraries always was to kind of learn more about software design. And so the problem with that is that once people start to use the library, if they're not coming to me regularly with like, this is a bad design, 
it's actually less interesting, right? Like <laughs> a successful library is less interesting than a library which is unsuccessful for some, you know, meaningful reason. And so that's a little bit tricky, right? Sort of speaking to my own motivations. But yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not like, you know, trying to pretend closure doesn't exist or pretend that like I, I don't have this sort of deep affection and connection to, to the language and to the community around it. It's just that it's hard for me to imagine how professionally I'm going to be able to be a closure programmer uh, because I've realized that what motivates me is dealing with sort of problems that get to the essence of what is good software design. And I just don't know that that's best answered by sort of, you know, continuing to be a full-time closure developer. And, you know, again, I, I hope someone proves me wrong here. I hope that, you know, if the time comes for me to go and look for my next job, I look around and the landscape is just chock full of really deep, fundamentally, you know, interesting design problems that are all implemented in Clojure. But it's something where I just have to go and kind of take stock and say that, you know, I've spent roughly 10 years of my life optimizing for closure above all else. And I think that that's not something that, you know, I can kind of justify indefinitely. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's very bittersweet. You know, I'm, I'm excited about this role. I'm excited about the things I'm going to learn. I'm excited about the people that I'll be working with, some of whom are former closure people. Uh, Jason Wolf, formerly of Prismatic, hmm. author of the Schema Library, uh, is there. Great. And is, in fact, like the reason that I was aware of this job at all. But it's, I think that it's something where I've just sort of reached a point where I, you know, closure cannot be the sort of overriding consideration here, for better or for worse. Yeah, I'm you know, excited to see what you come up with at Microsoft with so semantic machines and conversational AI at chatbot sounds a little bit reductive, but uh, I mean, I, I, that's sort of how I describe it to, to annoy uh, Jason, basically. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it is reductive, uh, not least because like that kind of calls up like the extremely limited sort of conversations that you will have with like Alexa or, you know, whatever. And so the hope here is that like what it is, is going to be significantly more. And so maybe, you know, you'll reclaim that term as a point of pride at some point, but for the time being, yeah, it's, it's conversational AI or conversational UI, depending on sort of how you want to kind of think about the, the domain and the application. Well, uh, people can buy uh, a copy of elements of closure on elements of closure.com. There's a print book and ebook available. Mm -hmm. And that was, it was pretty recent, the print book. Uh, and you know, you're on Twitter, Z Tellman, GitHub, Z Tellman, probably many other social media websites at Z Tellman. Uh, so yeah, I just want to say thanks for you know all of the the work and effort and time you've put into the closure community. And you know, ten years is a long time, and you've made a really, really lasting impact uh, on closure. Well, and I, I want to, you know, say the same to you. I mean, the work that you've done with Closures Together and other sorts of things like that, it's been extremely, you know, uh, time consuming and, you know, to go and sort of herd the community in a particular direction and everything like this is, I think, you know, very thankless work and you've been doing it for a while now. And, you know, I am a proud contributor to yeah. Closures together um, and will be for at least as long as, you know, people are buying the book because, you know, I, why wouldn't I go and sort of fold that back into the community? Right. But, and so everyone who's listening to this, I, I encourage you, I believe it's closuristogether.org. That's right. Am I getting that right? Yep. If you want to, you know, prove me wrong here, if you want to go and say that, you know, there is a vibrant future for, for closure that like, I'm just too 
pessimistic to see or something like this. I mean, the, the, one of the best ways you can go and sort of, you know, contribute to that and to, to make that true is to contribute to closures together, to be an active voice about what needs to be supported, what needs to be improved. You know, there, there are still many, many things that can be done, I think, to improve the ecosystem, to make it more friendly to beginners, to uh, sort of spur growth. And so, you know, I, I, I don't want to have people walk away from this thinking that like, this is somehow hopeless. I, I, I'm only speaking to sort of the trends that I see and trends are absolutely reversible. Great. Well, yeah, thanks again. And I'm sure I will be seeing a lot more of you and your work in the future. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah.